We go live to Scott Bailey of the National Weather Service for Hurricane Dorian tracking. It is a large storm. It's only going to be increasing in size as it passes off the South Carolina coast. No, no, that's just false. The hurricane, we all know, is going to go through Alabama. Here, I've drawn it in on the forecast map with this Sharpie, so you know that it's real. I want to make sure my constituents in Alabama know to be prepared. Make sure that you buy all the milk and water and perishable items from Walmart, especially if you're in the Dothan or Birmingham or Montgomery areas. It's definitely coming your way, so make sure you're okay. Trumpito out. President seeming fixation, a fixation that is in full force at this hour on a claim he made Sunday about Hurricane Dorian. That was when Trump on Twitter stated that Alabama would, quote, most likely be hit much in parentheses harder than anticipated. That prompted a clarification from the National Weather Service in Birmingham. But the story was far from over, with the president seemingly riled up by the news coverage of the matter. Who said that? Who said that? Whoever that is, I want them fired. They don't understand how these things work. I do because I'm the greatest president. I've never been better. There's never been a better president. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Brothers in Law podcast. As always, this is your boy, Jesse McCoy. I am joined by the world's foremost leading legal humorist, Sean Carter. And if you hear any bling or if this sound is messing up for you, it's probably the NBA championship ring that uh, is, is shining on the finger of our guest, Mr. David West. How you doing, man? Good. Thank you guys for having me, man. Wait a minute. We, we got two rings, don't we? Yeah, two of them. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, see, you, you, you know, let's not short the man his, his accomplishments. We were talking about two rings and, and a couple of all-star appearances. Am I got that right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Yeah, this is, we, 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 we ain't dealing with no, you know, as TLC would say, no scrubs. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we got a 15-year veteran, starter, all-star, champion. He, he's sort of like the me. Of, of of basketball, <laughs> right? <sighs> right. Well, yeah, <laughs> sort of like you, man. Uh, I'm still I'm still waiting on my call. You know, uh, Adam Silver. Whenever you're ready, you know, I'm ready when you're ready. <laughs> I I would like just to have one of those, you know, 15th man contracts. Uh, just, you know, that, that'd be good with me. I ain't got to play none. Just let, let me ride around with a team. I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll even double duty, you know, wash the jerseys and do all that too. Oh man! So I want to start off since obviously basketball is a big focus of the group right now. I want to start off first by asking Mr. West: Are there? Do you believe that there are any? misconceptions about people, young people particularly, who are looking at a career in the NBA and they want to figure out, how do I get from podunk Indiana to the league? Any tips that you got for us? Anything that you uh, can help? Even if we're, I mean, don't let age deter you. Even if we're 36 and we still, (laughs) (laughs) is there anybody we need to call? So I I would say if you (laughs) – if you uh if you're a young person, right, it starts with the dream, right? It starts with uh sort of dreaming yourself into that role um of being an NBA player or being a professional athlete 
And you've got to wholeheartedly believe the dream. You can't just believe it when it's comfortable or when it's cool or when it's popular. It's got to be an unwavering belief that you're going to reach this that level. Um, you know, and being just as focused and determined as you can, it doesn't matter where you are. Uh, I think that's where a lot of young people get mixed up is they think they got to be in a certain place to get mm-hmm. seen. If you do the work, uh, dedicate yourself to the game and earnest and do things in earnest, meaning you're supposed to do a certain amount of reps, do them. You're okay. supposed to do a certain, you know, get a certain amount of uh, exercise or rest, do it. And if you do things in earnest, uh, you'll get earnest results. And ultimately, the guys that reach the highest level are the guys that do things um, consistently over the long stretches of time in earnest. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, the playing days was, you know, you played with with, with all, all all the big time greats of, of the modern era. Let me ask you this: Who was the person who, I guess, gave you the most trouble? Um, you know, and it might not be, you know, LeBron, be, you know, somebody who just was your sure. personal nemesis and, and also the person who you really look forward to playing the most. So I probably, I mean, uh, I probably, my toughest opponent probably throughout my career, um, particularly early on was probably, uh, you know, Dirk is probably mm. between Dirk and, uh, you know, Elton Brand, um, and Kevin Garnett. I mean, those guys are, you know, those guys are legends, you know, when I got to the league. And I remember being young, looking up to those guys, even being only a few years younger than them, but they had already gotten to where I wanted to get to. So, um, you know, for a lot of years, I measured myself and my own personal development, you know, on how I was able to compete against those guys on the floor. Got and, um, you know, that, that was a, you know, they grew me up, you know, having to go against Dirk, you know, four or five, six times a year. Um, Really, you know, really grows you up, makes you get better, makes you take what you're doing for real. And you know, he, had, he had a little size on you. I mean, he had quite a little yeah. advantage yeah. on you there, right? Yeah, I mean, Dirk's seven. He's seven feet, and you know, he, he's a you know, when he was younger, he was a little little swifter, and he could shoot it from anywhere. So it was it was always a, a, a challenge. Um, you know, he was always again, like like I said, my toughest opponent because he was just that difficult to deal with. with his size and his ability to shoot the basketball. Um, but again, that, you know, that's what makes you who you are, particularly at the professional level. You've got to be able to measure up, you know, and hold your own. Hmm. Well, I've, I've got a question for you. What do you think about this new era? You know, you hear a lot of people in the barbershop complaining about super teams. Right. Like players who gather together to form right. a critical mass that's obviously going to win championships. Right. What, what is your opinion on super teams? Um, Super teams have always existed. Uh, <laughs> when I was a, when I was a young kid, man, the Showtime Lakers in the eighties were a super team. People don't mm-hmm. realize it was the Lakers, the Celtics, or the Pistons in the nineteen eighties. Are you right? So those are super teams. The Pistons, the Isaiah's championship teams, those teams were loaded full of talent. Now they didn't. It, maybe the way they were constructed was a bit different because the landscape was different. But you're looking at a team full of Hall of Fame players, the Bulls of the uh, of the '90s. Those teams were that was the Bulls were a super team. If, if Jordan didn't take his two year hiatus, they probably had eight championships. Right, in a row. You're you're you're, you're, you're right. 
And, and, you know, look at the Boston Celtics, for example. You're talking about Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert (laughs) Come on, man. Right. On on the same backcourt, right? The same time. Three Hall of Famers, right? Plus Dennis Johnson, Tiny Archibald. He's crazy, right? Mm. Come on, man. They had Bill Walton. Bill Walton couldn't even get no minutes on that team. <laughs> no, no, he's, one you, right. he's one of the fifty greatest to ever play. And, and no, and, and that is that, that that is the thing. Oh, by the way, I guess we have to ask obligatorily. All right, we, you got to give it. To, you wouldn't be on media if we didn't. Jordan or, or LeBron? Oh, um, man, I don't like. I, I've got a. I've got a very. Uh, uh, African American answer to that, but for, okay. the sake of this argument, <laughs> for the sake of this argument, I will say Michael Jordan, uh, only because MJ was, MJ never lost on the big stage. Okay. That, I mean, other than that, I mean, LeBron is an awesome player. He's the best player I've ever been on the floor with. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I've never, you know, when the heat, you know, we had some uh, some heated battles when we were uh, when I was in Indiana and he was with the Heat. We they, they eliminated us from the playoffs uh, three straight years, uh, two years, two straight years in the conference finals, a game away from the finals. Mm. Um, and having you know be, experiencing him at his, you know, when he's really playing um, again, it's something that that's why he stands alone in my book because uh, you know physically. You know, what he can, what he can generate through his force and his, at that size and his ability. He's the best player I've ever been on the floor with. But, you know, Mike just had that transcendent talent and Mike wasn't losing on, in the, on the big stage ever. <laughs> ever. I can see that. No, no, I, 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 I can totally see it. And we, we had to ask. It's the law. You, you know that. You, you know. <laughs> Everybody at the barbershop was waiting for <laughs> a breath on that response. But y- y'all are missing, you know, I think you all are overlooking one uh-huh. of the most underrated super teams of all time. Okay. And I'm referring to uh, Muggsy Bogues, Dale Curry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Alonzo Morning, Larry Johnson, the Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> they were the best team on NBA Jam for Sega Genesis. You know? <laughs> I, I got to give it to you. Nobody it, it goes harder for North Carolina than you. I'm going to give credit for that, all right? Y'all don't even have a baseball team, and I'm sure you you rooting for somebody in North Carolina to win the, the, the Italy baseball team. We're working on it. I'm going to talk to Michael Jordan to see what we can That's where you're from, too, right, David? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm, um, I, uh, I went to Garner Senior High School. Uh, my family, we, we, I was actually born and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey. And then when I was, uh, 16, um, be closer to my, uh, grandparents who were aging and getting older. Mm. Um, our family moved south and, uh, we've been in, uh, we've been in the Raleigh, Garner, Raleigh area for the last 20 plus years or so now. So yeah, Raleigh. Raleigh you know, all those years you'd be coming back on the off season to, to home and you, you never moved to like the New Orleans or. New, no, no, no. I would, I would live in, live in the uh, seat, uh, city during the season, and then as soon as the season was over, back to North Carolina, man. Um, North Carolina's home. Yeah, it really is the best place on earth. I try to tell everybody. 
<laughs> well, see, I, I'm from, you understand, my family, my, my mother's family is from North Carolina, uh, Henderson. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we, I've been, been to Henderson, and the, uh, <laughs> not a lot of Rich Carlton's in the Henderson area. <laughs> Y'all would be good, you know, Raleigh and Eddie. No, 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 no. It's, it's a little different in Henderson. Uh. Very okay. much so. We we have this running joke because I, I used to live in Henderson, and uh, and then I moved to Durham. So at that time, Durham had this horrible reputation for gangs, violence, drugs, all that stuff. But I moved to Durham, and it felt like an upgrade because I grew up in Henderson. Right. <laughs> right. So. Anyways, while we're talking, I want to kind of address, you know, w- with being an NBA star, you get certain points of celebrity that you can use to be able to influence all kinds of change in the world. And some people embrace that and some people don't. So I want to first find out what things are you passionate about and what things do you choose to use your celebrity status to address? Um. Okay, so I, I mean, I look at it really... Like I said, from really a, a holistic point of view, like we all breathe air, we all need water, food, we all live on this earth. Um, we are all a part of this society, regardless of where you are in that society, like what you're doing as a profession. We all live in the same within the same context of the general society. So, my initial thought, regardless of if I'm a NBA player. Um, or if I'm like my father who worked in the post office for 30 years, he delivered mail and was an army reservist on the weekend. It's about living a life of peace and pursuing justice. Mm. Those are the basic sort of tenets that undergird me, right? And regardless of what I'm doing in life, where I'm at in life, uh, those pieces don't change. And whether I have a, you know, a, a huge following and people listen to what I say because I was able to put a basketball in a hoop, or if I'm a local librarian, uh, the contribution that I can make to the society, stemming my thoughts around, uh, am I, am I, am I contributing to a peaceful and just world in my immediate circle right are we are we living a life in our immediate arms rings uh where we're doing things according to this peaceful nature that naturally humans are inclined um and are we being just in our decisions and how we're communicating and and working with one another so that's where the crux of all of me comes from and then beyond that more specifically it's just impact. It's finding places that and spaces where I can have an impact. And um, if it's whether it's coaching young kids, um, you know, delivering messages to juvenile uh, um, offenders in juvenile centers, uh, whether it's helping homeless families or helping people uh, uh, you know, relocate, whatever it is. Those, you know, my objective is to have an impact and then to be centered on peace and justice. And I think if we're able to do that, if I'm able to do that, then I think I'll be able to continue to have an impact in the world, regardless of if I'm an NBA player or not. Now, now how do you go about, you know, filtering or, um, you know, because I imagine 
you know, you have notoriety. Um, you signed the contract for a little bit of money from time to time. Right. <laughs> so people, you must get a lot of people with, you know, various things and ways in which you can make an impact. How do you go sort of go through that list and, and figure out, you know, well, I guess what is your, you know, your metric that says, no, 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 this is the kind of things I want to focus on and this is important and, 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 you know, these other things are important, but not for me. Well, the first thing I do is I make sure people understand that my time is just as valuable as my money. Okay. So the one of the issues that I that I think we, we run into in our society is people simply think that just because you write a check and that check may get deposited or distributed, that that check or the, the effect of you writing that check is going to have a certain level of impact. That's not a guarantee. You know, you putting your face and going to meet people and greet people, getting on the ground at the grassroots level with folks may sometimes carry on longer than a $500 or $1,000 check that you wrote. Makes so you sense. gotta find the balance. Um, and so for me, you know, probably the biggest turnoff is if you, someone approaches me and I don't feel that at the heart of your message, you're doing it for the right reasons. Okay. Or ultimately, it's not going to have the type of positive impact, right? So I learned years ago that every time I make a decision, regardless of, you know, if it's a, if it's a, a, a easy decision like turning the knob or, you know, we all get messed up sometimes where we don't know if we should push the door or pull the door. You don't want to look crazy, <laughs> right. right? So it's like you got to make that decision. I learned years ago that regardless of what that that question is, when I make this decision, I'm looking for a positive outcome on the other side. It, it, when I if I'm going to push this door, what I want to happen is the door to open. I don't want it to stop and me walk into it. Right. You want positive outcomes based on the decisions that we make. So that's that's really, like I said, how I frame all of this, man, particularly as I, as we go through this journey of life, man, we don't know what's going to be, what's going to be thrown at us. I mean, we get, as an athlete, I get approached every single day about a bevy of things, right? Right. But right. the bottom line is when I make that decision, if I make that choice, I'm looking at, is the outcome going to be positive? And if it is positive, then what type of impact or positive impact is it going to have? And how long will that impact last? Is it something that's going to, you know, when we, when we go, you know, one of the, one of the greatest, the best times that I have, and it, it, it sounds, uh, I don't know, it may sound a little strange, but it's when I go and visit young brothers incarcerated, right? In the juvenile mm. system. Mm. And when you go in and you, speak to these brothers where they are, right? That is far more impactful than you sending 40 T-shirts into <laughs> the autograph. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Your presence and, and, and all that. And, and then when you, now, you know, tell me this because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed and, and, you know, in awe. Uh, you know, it seems like, you know, the most depressing place on earth. Um, you know, what, what, what do you, how do you see it that, that gives you that, that, that the more positive feeling about it? Well, because, the first, usually the first response from the guys is, I can't believe you came in here to see us. Got it. Right. Because nobody, everybody has written these kids off. Mm -hmm. Right? Everybody has basically said, you're in the system now, and you're on that, on that track to stay in the system. 
And so I've always felt like particularly uh, like when I was in Indiana, we had a program where uh, at Pendleton, where basically the brothers who were incarcerated, these young brothers knew that, you know, based on how they behaved and some of the things that they were doing there, there would be this potential of, of an event. Right. Every I think it was like three months we would do it. Four, every three or four months we would do it. OK, got it. they didn't know they didn't know it was necessarily tied to me. A lot of times these guys were thinking it was just some perk they were going to get inside the system, like maybe an extra five minutes on TV. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or something right, like right. that. So it's like, oh, no, there's an NBA player coming in here. He's coming through these eight gates like we did. And he's coming in here where we are. He didn't have to do it. There's no there's no reward for it. But it's important for my human expression or my human self to feel and show empathy, to show compassion and show that to these to these men, these young men who are in a very unfortunate situation. And I always felt like going in and meeting them where they are, if I signed a hundred t-shirts and sent them in there. It wouldn't have any impact. They might get excited, but going in and talking, meeting them, talking to them face to face, sharing your experiences with them, opening their eyes. I'm a, I'm a man of history. So I study African, uh, African history, African American history, anything concerning us in a historical context. I pretty much have got my finger or my pulse on. And so I'm able to connect with them. Because that's usually where I start is I start telling them stories that they haven't heard about themselves. I give them a historical starting point in history that says, yo, you shouldn't. If this is where you started, there's no way this is where you should finish. Right. Mm. Now, now, see, you know, you you're obviously very grounded. And, you know, it made me think of something. Obviously, when you come into the league, you're a young man, 21, 22 years old. You don't know anything. You sort of, and you've mentioned it, you know, you get these mentors, people you want to be like, and not just professionally on the court, but also off the court. There's certain people you want to be like and others, you you know, you want to be less like. Did you do that for retirement? Did you go around and say, okay, you know, I saw some people doing some things. Like, how did you learn how to retire so successfully? Because you could have done a lot of different things, you know, with your time. Right. Um, You know, I started preparing. I, when I got drafted, uh, PJ Brown was, uh, was a veteran for me and mm-hmm. PJ, PJ might have been like year 11 or 12 for PJ. So he was, he was inching toward the end and PJ told me day one, the first he said, you got to start preparing for retirement right now, Wes. And this was, I, I was a rookie. I was, <laughs> I was a year in and he put it in my mind. He said, you know, you don't know when this is going to be over with. And you don't want to be caught with your pants down. So I started preparing um very, very early. Now I didn't start thinking about retirement after as a rookie or hell, right. even as a four or five year, fifth year player. But as you as you get older in the game, um and you haven't allowed yourself the one thing I'm I'm proud of is I didn't allow myself to get consumed by the lifestyle. And sometimes what happens with professional sports is players can get consumed and start to think that the way that you live as a professional athlete is a, is sort of a normal circumstance. And once you get, if you get confused and think that living like a professional athlete is a normal circumstance, it is going to be a hard crash and burn when the basketball stops bouncing. Right. Mm. Because 
life is not the NBA. Life is not the NFL. Like if you guys, you guys saw, uh, uh, this week with, uh, Antonio Brown, you guys know that oh, that type goodness. of behavior, that, I mean, I, listen, the brother's super talented, but you all know that in your line of work, that type of behavior is <laughs> anywhere. I'm right? gonna try next week. I don't know. I'm gonna try. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know exactly. You know, and right. you know the the thing that that's, that's sort of interesting. Let me, you know, is I usually be in a, in a great sweet spot, which is that you know you have you know enough fame to to get the table you want at the at the local restaurant, but I assume that you know I, you know you can go some places and not necessarily be recognized by everybody, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's like it's a great amount of fame, you know, it's a useful amount, but it's not, you know, Jordan, right, or LeBron, where everybody is all over you all the time. Yeah. But I will tell you, I will say this, though. Um, you know, you if you look at the way that a lot of that is you you generate that. So it's not in my personality to be that way. Um, you, you know, most guys make that choice, make that decision. You can make a decision that I want to get out, be out in front of the camera, have my PR people constantly sending videos and still shots of me and have my people, you know, make a, make a determination. Look, there's 365 days in a year. I want a story, a blog post, a tweet, um, some sort of, uh, messaging about me and my brand 300 days out of the year. <laughs> right, right. And there are people who do that. I, I, I never felt like that was going to be a part of my story. So I never went toward that because I, I do, I do like the fact that I can go into a restaurant most times and not be bothered. You know, I don't, right. I mean, people recognize me obviously because, you know, once you see the height and you get a good look <laughs> at it, most people figure it out. But, you know, there is some, there is some peace in that, you know, being able to fly under the radar to a degree. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not obviously a problem that that, that Jesse and I have. Uh, I, I have actually, on occasion, uh, been famous for a little while in a short period in a short in, in a short period of time in a certain place. So I give a talk somewhere. I'm a professional speaker by trade, and and if I give a, a good talk, I might be famous, you know, at the resort for three days. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to confess, I, I I'm I'm I pray for me, but uh, it's never long enough. Right, I got you. I got you. I, got you. I, got you. I, can, I can do another three, four days before. Right. I, um... See, man, I, I think I'm I'm low key. Like I know I will make a great NBA athlete because <laughs> when that day comes, when I get to come up and put my jersey on, uh, I'm not gonna be trying to go to social media. I'm I'm not gonna do anything. I'm I'm gonna be silent. I'm gonna get my right. points. I'm gonna make sure that people want to have my trading card. For those who still engage in trading cards, and uh, I'm a frame it, and that's it. That's all I'm gonna do. All I want is the money. That's what. <laughs> David, money. Which one of us is gonna have to break to Jesse that that, that he's old to break it to the NBA? I, I don't. I, I, mean, I don't. Maybe I should say. You say. You tell him. But, but, but you you what? Thirty five now, Jesse? Uh, yeah. You know, thirty six. You know, um, but I feel nineteen. Nowadays, 22 might be too old to be a rookie, but certainly, um, you know, now that's by the way, I was looking at you think that's a weird thing is you were probably like in the last generation of of people who went all the way through in college, right? Right. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I was. I there was. There been a few guys since. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an anomaly now. Um, you know, most guys, most times now, um, and I experienced this song, the longer you stay in college is, is seen as a, a strike against you. Absolutely. Um, um but I, I mean, I, I get it. Um, you know, where, where things have gone now, um, it's a different, it's a different life. It's a different time with all of the revenues and all these different things. It's a different time. So we can't really look at what, you know, what it was like for a guy like myself. I mean, I was un, under recruited. Um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to go on Twitter and make a big deal out of myself. I just had to accept, you know what I'm saying? I had to accept the, what the landscape was and figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. there are a lot more mechanisms now, um, that empower these guys, um, at a very, very early age than we had available to us. What was interesting? I was looking at yours. You know, your senior year. You know, your AP Player of the Year. Um, you know, and, and then you, you know, you were drafted like 18th, and I was like, well, what's going on here? Right. But I get it. You know, a smaller school, and it's just you know, it's yeah. a different time. So you couldn't, you know, have your daddy on there on you know on the sports shows talking crazy, right? Like my, you know, I, I never, I never thought about. I, my whole goal was to get drafted. I knew that if I got there, I could take, I could handle my business once I got there. Um, and you know, again, like I said, man, I was, I, I you know, part of my, my strength or, or my main strength, uh, on the court has been my mind and the ability to outthink people for, to make up for some of the, uh, physical shortcomings that I have. Like I'm not, wasn't an overly explosive athlete. I was blessed with decent size, but not great size. Um, you know, could, couldn't jump over the rim. So the bottom line was my mind had to get me through and my mind was what I used to navigate and make decisions about how I was going to play, and how I was going to approach each game. And it benefited me, uh, you know, and then again, my story, I wasn't, I wasn't highly recruited. So I needed the time to develop and get those, you know, get that experience under my belt that college had to offer at the time. So that that was going to be my follow up question because we exist now in an era where people are challenging this concept of the NCAA being oh, yeah. able to make boatloads of money oh, off yeah. of predominantly black students who oftentimes oh, yeah. aren't coming from the best living arrangements and won't right. even you know won't even let you make money off of your name on yeah. jerseys yeah. or anything like that. Right. So I wonder for for an athlete in 2019 who is pursuing college. We saw the issue with Zion Williamson when his shoe exploded and the world went crazy because they were like, if he plays another game for Duke, he's stupid, right? Like there's, yeah, there's no right. way. Don't mess up your meal ticket up. What, what do you think or what are your, what is your opinion about how the NCAA chooses to conduct business? Um, and what they, what needs to happen in order to ensure that these student athletes are at least getting food to eat, or just some of the basic necessities that they seem to be neglected. Right. Well, we, you know, I'm I'm working with a group, the Historical Basketball League. Um, and we're working to become a professional college league where we can get, mm. uh, get get our get our players and get this country to a point, the college basketball world to a point where players are properly compensated for the market that they help create. If you think about the NCAA right now, or just college basketball in general, college basketball is a multi-billion-dollar sport. You got Hundreds of coaches making, you know, six hundred fifty, seven hundred fifty thousand plus, all the way up into the tens of millions, 
to coach these kids. Um, athletic directors, assistant athletic directors, trainers, strength and conditioning coaches. These people make careers out mm-hmm. of coaching these kids. They make careers mm-hmm. for themselves out of the opportunities that they have to work with these kids. The only people that don't have opportunities to uh, to benefit from that system are the players, the ones that are literally making the system go. And right. so we've come up we've come up with a different system uh, to to educate the students separately from their athletics. So right now in the current college construct, you got to go to play basketball and go to school at the same time. In our in our system, basketball is in the summer. Academics, personal skill development is in the school year. So you would play four months in the summer, academically enroll in a traditional or non-traditional educational track. So we're talking about vocational schools, trade schools, online universities, media, uh, 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 media schools and training schools, because what we want to do is, which doesn't currently happen at a high level, is transfer tangible talent to athletes. So you have very few athletes that are getting prepared to be professionals. So imagine if you went, so it's equivalent to you going to law school and then preparing you to be a great law student, but you're a practicing lawyer. That's not the deal. You're not coming to this law school to be a lawyer. You're coming to this law school to be the best law student we can make you. And then if, if you can go on and become a lawyer, well, we'll we'll use your name and likeness once you're gone for the rest of your life. <laughs> David, you're gonna find it hard to believe, but that is the exact complaint we have about law school all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> if it come out and you don't know how to do anything, right? But right. The, you know, law school briefs. But I understand that same complaint, same issue. Right. Um, now, how are you guys? You know, so you so you're trying to get this. Um, what, what do you call it again? What, what's legal? The Historical Basketball League. Okay. We call it the Historical Basketball League. Um, We initially wanted to work with the H work within the HBCU world, Mm. uh, but that that was a story in amongst itself. Um, (laughs) Try to get those brothers and a few of those sisters to understand where we're trying to go with this. Um, But the other part is that historically speaking. Uh, Carnegie did a commission, they called it the Carnegie Commission, I think, in 1929, and they basically did, like, this random survey of all these universities to find out, you know, what was go- going on at these universities, and the report came back that the majority of universities were paying their students to play athletics. So, mm. for us, it was just a return to what college sports used to be. Mm, okay. You see now, how were they paying them back then? As far as they weren't giving, were they giving them cash or were they kind of these, you know? It was, it was, it was money. I don't think this, I don't think the, the school part was as important as the basketball part. Okay. But it, but, but just think about it. It's just like, uh, a, a college student now having a summer job. It just so happens that these guys' job is basketball. See, what we've got to get beyond is sports are no longer just sports. These are this, these are trades, right? Okay. You, you you can learn basketball to a de, to a degree that it could take you all over the world. If you learn basketball and you know basketball and you're proficient at basketball and you can teach basketball, you always be employed as long as China is a nation. China's mm. the number one basketball mm. market in the world. 
over 320 million people do something basketball related twice a week in China. We have really? 320 million people in this country total. China's the number one basketball market in the world. So what does that, what is that, what am I saying? What I'm saying is it's not, you don't, you no longer just have to play. If Got you it. learn the game, if you learn how to teach this trade, you can feed yourself for the rest of your life if you can teach basketball because there's hundreds of millions, there are billions of people that want to learn how to play this game. So it's no longer just a game that you're playing outside in the yard. It's a career. You can become, you can be a basketball coach, trainer, uh, a strength and conditioning person, a, a sports basketball nutritionist, a sports <laughs> psychologist, sports attorneys. Uh, did you guys know that the, the, the scorekeeping, statisticians, clock keepers, these are all employment opportunities around the game of basketball because basketball is a world among, in, in and of itself. Each NBA teams have people hired just to run their social medias now. All of them. Right? You have, you have, so there, there are so many different things in the game of basketball that athletes can learn. And now, beyond just the game, it becomes a trade. It becomes something that you can literally create exchange with because you know something that other folks want to learn. There are people all over the world that want to learn. So we have but to sure, start. Surely, surely the NCAA knows this, right? Surely <laughs> the NCAA, yeah. is there some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, but maybe yeah. uh, institutional racism? Uh, is there some reason why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it literally is. I mean, right. So you have this institutionalized system that exploits predominantly African American males, right? Right. It it is it at the college football level. It is at a it's at a level that is grotesque, and and then college basketball is getting there, right? You know, they they said that last year that the amount of exposure that ESPN was giving Nike. On Zion, while Zion Williamson was wearing the shoe, they said the amount, the value that that was worth, that Nike should have been paying basically for that Mm -hmm. advertising was about $923,000 a half. But that's what the value, but because of the rules in place, there's no way that those agreements can be put in place, right? So it's just, we're going to put our our sneakers on this athlete and we're just going to exploit him on national TV. We're just going to show, we're going to show him every time he runs up and down the floor. We're going to show his Nike symbol. We're going to show his shoe. It's just, it's, it, it's what happens based on where the system is now. And so we've got a, you know, we've got an opportunity to make it fair, to level the playing field, to give these guys a chance to be a part of the business. Um, you know, like I said, you know, giving these guys, listen, if a guy is, if a guy gets media training, if a guy gets basic personal skill development, if a guy, um, learns in our system how to, uh, how to pick an agent, how to pick a financial advisor, if he goes through a, a, a six or eight week basic financial literacy course, uh, we feel like that is going to better prepare him for a professional life in the sports world than what he's currently getting. Absolutely. If you going to go to a four-year university where 
they're going to literally put him in an academic schedule that means nothing because all they need, they need him to be eligible and they need him to have enough time to be on that court or on that field. You know, not only that, it's amazing. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to um, the NCAA tournament first round up in up in Detroit, and it happened to be the Michigan teams were playing there. Michigan State was playing, and uh, young brother Jaron Jackson um, was was coming out. You know, was expected to be a you know a lottery pick, maybe six seventh uh, pick, Mm -hmm. and uh, Jaron Jackson. And, 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 you know, he didn't have a great tournament at all. You know, two horrible games and, you know, but he's a young guy. He's developing. Right. And you know how it works in the NBA now. We're not looking for the guy who's the best player. We're looking for the guy who has the best body. We'll, we'll, we'll teach you how to shoot and all that stuff later, right? Right. He's turned out to be kind of a heck of an NBA basketball player. But, but I remember at the time someone was like, you know, he needs to stay in college another year. And it was like, he can't stay in college another year. Right, right. Right. The one, you know, we can't, you can't keep him there because your, your draft, you know, lottery, all that stuff will go down and, you know, you're not going to get the big first contract. But even more importantly, chances are excellent. He won't be eligible next year because all he needs to be for one is to be eligible for one semester right. of the tournament, right? right? And, right. and so you got a lot of these kids who, not, who have not even been back to the campus since that first semester. All you need to be, to be eligible enough to get through March Madness. And, 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 and I, I totally get it, you know, rightfully so. But, you right. know, they're not even like teach you know, so that, you know, the one year you get of college isn't even one year. It's usually like one semester. And what is one right. semester of college worth? Nothing. Right. Right. And you're missing an opportunity to educate a young person who's highly vulnerable. Right. Mm-hmm. An opportunity to teach someone, like I said, basics, some basic fundamentals about how to answer questions, how to say no. Right. How to vet an agent, how to vet somebody who you want to help you with your finances, how to vet an attorney. You know, the importance of having certain people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these are the types of things that aren't uh, aren't offered currently. And because they're not a part of like the traditional uh, uh, college model. And so these are the things that we're going to offer in our league. Um, so that we're, again, we're focusing on and concentrating on the, on the complete individual. And we're honoring that person's choice, just like we do in soccer, just like we do in, in, in tennis and golf. When a kid is 16, 17, 18 year old, is years old and said, this is what I want to do to make a living. Got it. You, you know, I can almost see us, and I don't know, I'm not familiar enough with the hockey system, but hockey seems to be doing something that, you know, maybe the NBA or the college basketball might start going to there's so much money for them they probably won't want to where you know you get drafted in in hockey like out of high school but you don't go necessarily to the nhl originally you can go to college and play right and they kind of have a dual system now they wouldn't have the education that you guys are offering so tell me this is the 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 was historical basketball league yes sir um you know what are the what are the plans when are you going to get up and running you think uh yeah. So for so what we're doing so what we're doing now is we are uh we're we're getting partnerships, sponsorships in line. Uh we've got investors, we've got people who've invested. Uh we're going to I you know I don't think we'll ever be uh done raising money. Uh, <laughs> we're we're targeting we're targeting the summer of 21 um okay. you know to start recruit, to recruit uh players high school we're going to recruit the top 100 high school players, 150 high school players. Top, uh, 75 to 100 international players, and that includes Canada. And then we're going to look at the top 50 to 75, uh, co- potential college transfers, because we're not going to penalize guys who are in the current system who want to leave the current system and, and give themselves a different pathway, uh, to try to 
to try to play professional sports. Yeah. And like you said, you know, there's so many other things to do in sports, which, by the way, Jesse, do you listen? You, you, you're not going to play point guard, but maybe you can run the clock. All right. And, you know, and, and by the way, you know, we would tease you about this, but I had a good buddy of mine. You know, I, I went to Brown University, not exactly a basketball powerhouse. Right. right. Uh, we haven't produced a pro in, in basketball uh, since ever. Um, but <laughs> we had a couple guys on the team. And what they did is they did exactly what David. I mean, they started, you know, getting into um, what was that? You know, athletic was the athletic development. Right. So you right, go to the right. athletic department and. And now, you know, a couple of these guys are, you know, at universities where, you know, larger universities. And, yeah, you make good good money. And, by the way, here's the thing about it is, yeah, you might only make a half a million or so, uh, but you get to do it for, like, 50 years. There you go. Right? <laughs> you, you can do all right kinda, with that. Right? <laughs> that's kind of my point. I, I think one of the things, and I'm, I'll apologize in advance because I'm guilty of this, too. I think one of the things that keeps the NCAA so empowered is the people like me, who sit on the couch eating chips watching it because you guys are living our dream, right? So right, we right. feel like, why should you get paid too? If we're <laughs> here and we got to work this regular nine to five, but we have no prospect uh, of going. And it took me sitting down and actually understanding the dynamics of what students are going through in right. order for me to appreciate, hey, this is bigger than just that. The other right. side of it, though, is – as soon as people start to get a whiff of, hey, this NCAA thing seems weird. The NCAA does a great job in their uh, promotions and marketing to paint players who want more as being something that is wrong, right? right so if, right. if you're somebody who want to, wants to leave to go pro or you're somebody who actually wants to pursue your academics and not necessarily just keep up with the athletics, particularly if you don't feel you're going to be a draft candidate, Right. There's there's a, a shame there that the NCAA is able to exploit and pretty much appease all the couch surfers who are watching the television to say right, this person's point. lazy. That's a great point. Yeah, that's I mean that's a great point. And that again, I think the the issue around and I understand what you were saying um, uh, with the perception, but being a college athlete is a full time job. So the idea. That a guy can actually go to college, play, produce at a high level, and academically really get some work done. You're talking about the epitome of multitasking because just the sport itself is a full time job. Anytime, anytime you're talking about, like, uh, I was over at NC State last week, um, uh, uh, uh playing with a couple guys, but I got, a, I got a kid there that I, uh, mentor that came through my AAU program that's over there now. And I just asked him about his day. And he was like, well, we had, you know, they had conditioning at 6 from like 6 to 7.30 <laughs> in the morning. So he's up at 5.30, conditioning from 6 to 7.30, class from 8.30 to noon, and then, uh, uh, you know, 1 o'clock to 5.30, 6 o'clock, he's in the gym in some capacity working. And then 6.30, he's off the study hall. So, you mm. you know, and this is the off season, and he's a guy that's not even eligible to play this year. He got to sit out this year. So you're talking about you're talking about you know uh, you know play you know if you think about a guy who has, has to prepare for a game, prepare to perform, perform at a high level, and then go take a test, and then try to meet the academic requirements that are laid, placed at his feet. This is why the universities make the decisions 
to put these guys in basket weaving and put these guys mm. in color pencil class and things like that because they don't want to run the risk of him stressing over a test and not being able to hit them jump shots or not being able to get you <laughs> down. Yeah, I'm with- I, I hear you throwing shade at UNC. I, 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 I didn't say that. I'm just saying that that helps. That that so we want to get away from that because, like you said, man, there's there are you know you got a guy who a guy who's going to be a, a top ten pick. He's going to be on this college campus for six months, and you literally don't have him in a media training course. You don't have him in a public speaking. Course, you don't have them in uh, uh, because those courses interfere with practice time. <laughs> no, no, and I mean it's crazy. You know, I imagine, like you say, you know, at, at a big time program, it's even more. But even when I was at Brown, remember, you know, when I produced some pro athletes, it, it, it. But my buddies on the team, you know, the amount of time they spent between practice and all that, it was like, when do you get to be a college student? Right, the fun part and all that. You're not doing any of that stuff, right? The hanging out, the the you know the the ultimate frisbee and all the you know the 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 perks <laughs> of college. You know the, the you know and, and David doesn't know anything about this, but Jesse might know a little bit about this. But the drinking and you know the partying, <laughs> that is like not the even ladies. possible. <laughs> yeah, oh, I didn't forget about that part. You know, and <laughs> and then somehow I'm, I'm sure the brothers are making time for that part. But but it's like you know all of that stuff that is just a part of you know the experience you get none of that right 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 none, none, none of it and you get to make the you know, and the one thing if nobody was making money here we we're all doing it but i love the fact that you know i don't care how long you play or what you do nobody's gonna make my chesky money right Right. I mean, you know, yeah, that, that, that's LeBron and Jordan money there. I mean, that's years of, of, of $10 million forever, plus, you know, endorsements and all that. I love it. Like, you put a guy in some shoes that might fall apart, but it, but nobody gets paid uh, except for you. Right, right, right. Right. That's the type of balance we're fighting for, man. We just think the players deserve a piece of the pie, you know, and – these universities, these universities are spending the money on locker rooms. They're spending the money on all of these other things because they're already paying themselves great. Right? <laughs> so, and because they legally said they're never going to pay the players, they've got to put the money somewhere. So you've got these locker rooms that get updated. How, like how much updating do you have to do in a locker room? If you just did a $10 million upgrade to a locker room, two years later, you're doing another $15 million upgrade. And then four mm-hmm. years later, you're doing a $20 million upgrade or something ridiculous like that to the locker room. And I think <laughs> if you ask the guys, if you said, hey, would you take a $150 chair from, from Office Depot and we put the rest of the money that we spent on mm-hmm. your uh, your office, your, 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 your locker room, this plus locker room carpet and these old, would you take that money in your pocket and take this $200 Office Depot chair? I bet you the kids would take the, the Office Depot chair. You don't. Uh, I, I, I'm grown, and my last chair cost thirty nine dollars. So, so I know I would take. <laughs> well, I'll say, man, I, I know the money has to be good because I don't know if y'all remember, but a few years back, um, L.A. was trying to recruit Coach K to come coach there, okay. and he pretty much had everybody, even Kobe, calling him saying, "Hey, come on out to L.A. We're ready for you." He was like, "No, I'm good here." <laughs> <laughs> Right, at the collegiate level. Oh, no. You you, you understand, you know, I I looked at it, and the craziest part is, especially some of these state schools. So you look at a guy like Nick Saban from Alabama. 
All right. By far the highest paid state employee. Right. In, in, in He's making more than the whole state of Alabama combined. Right. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. He makes how does he make 50 times more than the governor? Right. Exactly. He's, resp- he's responsible for 50 people. The governor's responsible for, you know, 5 million. And somehow, you know, and it's just like, yeah, no, no wonder why your, your school system is 49th. If you spend that I kind mean, of money on some teachers. How many right. national championships has the governor won? Roll time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, well, that's the worst part is, is that that's exactly the attitude that not just from the university, but we all kind of have. If you, you talk, right. I've, I've had people, you know, in Alabama literally, you know, pull a gun on me if I say something like that. Like, how dare you? Like, you said roll time. Yeah, right? I don't give a damn if any of us can read or write. We, just, we, we roll time in here. That's not even a real term, right? But we don't care. Right, right, right. Well, let me let me ask, because I know we were talking about all of the different opportunities that the historical basketball league will provide. Will the uh, historical basketball league also provide opportunities to connect uh, the people who are participating with social justice issues? And and what do you feel is the role of an athlete or even, Mm. you know, by by some extent, an entertainer? And being involved in advocating for people who are dealing with some of the injustices that right. we see today. Well, in our in our league, we're going to be very, you know, look, we're going to be very progressive, very open, forward thinking. Uh, again, I'm going to, you know, Im- implement sort of my own personal basis, right? Is 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 are you promoting peace? Uh, and is the society just, right? The decisions that we make, the things that we decide uh, uh, to choose to do, um, are those things just right are we are we are the outcomes um equal we've got to fight that's what we're fighting for that's been our eternal battle in this country right is fighting for the outcomes um uh, and not taking just the procedure uh we've gotten to a point now in this country where procedure right just going through the procedure is perceived as justice and it's not Mm -hmm. right We, we need just just outcomes and so um, our league is going to be, you know, we're going to be out front with that, with those things, obviously. But from a from a player perspective or a celebrity or athlete perspective, um, you know, it's a lot like, you know, my answer was earlier, man. It's just about the impact, man. And knowing that you don't have to be a role model like Charles Barkley said, right? Um, you just can't mess it up, you know. So if you're not, <laughs> you know, if you if you if you're not going to be out here being a positive light and inspiring people, then you don't need to be out here uninspiring people and pushing people toward degeneracy and other things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really let, like I said, um, uh, this, the whole celebrity thing enter into my mind. What I do know um, is that, you know, we probably as a society need to get a little, we need to get away from trying to see the world and encapsulate the world through the eyes of celebrities. We need to we, we need to get away from trying to to act as if the perspective of the celebrity is the perspective of the general population because it's it's not. I think you know the situation with uh, with Jay Z is 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 is, uh, is an example of that, right? We're we have a society where we're trying to look through and sympathize through the eyes of those who are privileged, those who are successful. Um, and those who have power, uh, those who have celebritized fame, and um, 
you know, that gets you in situations where people start voting against their own interests. Right? It gets you in situations where people people make decisions that are antithetical of their own personal situations. Interesting, um, you, you mentioned you, you mentioned that one because you know, we spent a lot of time even on this podcast talking up about it. We've had a couple of, of camps here. Jesse has been, I think, for the most part. If I'm in, 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 let me know if I'm mischaracterizing your position that okay. that that Jay Z don't always come when you want him, but he's always on time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's gross mischaracterization. <laughs> All, all I've said, all I've said is I want to see what the plan is. The, the problem that I have with both Colin Kaepernick and Jay-Z is okay. I feel like they both left me hanging. I, I, I felt the passion and then I'm like, okay, so what do you want us to do about it? What is our goal? What are the objectives? And I feel like with Colin Kaepernick, he just went into hiding and I don't know what, what he wants to do. And then with Jay-Z, somehow it, it became, well, let's get involved and be an integral part of the system and change it from within. Change it how? Like, what are we doing? So one thing is, I think when we I saw him make the move. Off, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, when I initially saw him make the move, I thought, okay, well, I, I don't know what this is gearing up for. Is this his run to try to become uh, a part owner. Like, I don't know what this right, is right. for. Uh, and so right now I, I don't really have a comment yet, but it seemed like there was this backlash of people who were like, Oh, he sold cap out. And I was trying to figure out like, well, how, how did he sell cap out? Because what is it that cap wanted us to do? And I don't know. I don't know if they've had conversations. Um, yeah. I don't know anything, but what I do know is this issue started off with police brutality and a, a issue about whether or not the NFL field is the proper platform for a player to use for this versus the league to use to take their time away from the game. Right. And the league was saying, we don't want to be involved in this because officers buy tickets too. Cap says, well, that's fine, but I'm here, so I'm going to do it. And I think that's what makes Cap heroic to me. My issue is you became a hero now we're waiting for you to lead. And that's the flaw of me and probably a lot of black America. We right. look for leadership, right? right? So we see you stand up and you're on TV and you got your fro out and we like, yes, <laughs> like let's, <laughs> let's do something. And then right. it's, well, boycott until he gets a job. Well, no, because if we're saying the league is racist, why do we want him to go back to work for the racist? It doesn't right, make right, sense. Right, right. Right. You know, I I think that that's going to be interesting. And 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 tell me how you you know experience this, David. You know, people will often say, you know, we don't have the leaders we used to have. And I'm starting to think I don't think we have the followers we used to have. Mm, like I think when we get a good we get a leader out there, no matter who it is, you see it on on social media all the time. You know how quickly you go from being, you know, a leader to a sellout to a goat to, you know, the person we hate. It's one perceived misstep, right? Right. And and, and I look at you know someone like Dr. King, all right, who's not a perfect man, but people followed him rightfully so, and, and you know, you know, literally, you know, put their bodies on the line, and it's like. It wasn't like he had to be, you know, a perfect man. It was just like, you know what? You got a plan. We're going with it. You're the leader. And, and, and I think for us, you know, and it's just like now 
it, it's hard when the age of social media where everybody has a platform and everybody has something to say where it's like, you know, we don't, it's hard to, to, to be, to be followers because we all, I think, want to be leading the, the charge. Or instigating. So I will, I will say that I think we have, first of all, if we look historically, right, I wouldn't want to be no black leader. Because we don't protect <laughs> black leaders, man. So I, it, 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 we we haven't been able to protect a single one of these brothers or sisters who have decided to step out and say, "I am going." It is going to be around my ideas that we organize. Right, right. We have not been able to protect a single one of them uh, for whatever reason. And we and and honestly, we haven't been able to protect those people from ourselves because it was just usually one of us that is right. Right. So we haven't been able to do that. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is, I think we because of how history has been Disneyfied to us, right? So we grew up (laughs) with eyes on the prize. We watched every school year. We watched Roots, and so we grew up. Sort of in this in uh, in this enchanted uh, environment because a lot of I remember a lot of my teachers had personal experiences coming out of the civil rights movement. My father was born in 1938. My mother was born in 1945. All right, they lived through the civil rights movement. I mean, we the and I mean I'm 39, so our that my age group, right? People that were born in the 1980s. We are, we were raised in a time where it was like, look, you've got to understand the, the, the condition that the country was in just 20 years ago. You know, just, you know, in, in the 80s. So we were in school learning these things. So we were conditioned differently. We didn't question when we saw Jesse Jackson on TV or Al Sharpton on TV. When I remember the first, when Nelson Mandela came to New York after my mother took us to New York. To stand in the crowd to see him, his motorcade and the whole the whole deal. The first time I remember, my, we were walking in Harlem and I saw Khalid Muhammad on the on the street uh, preaching out of a, a bullhorn. Like hmm. we were, it was a different time. Phil Donahue, do you do you guys remember the Phil Donahue show? The, the, he used to have almost once a month. Dude, do, 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 do you know there are no there are no networks or opportunities like that? For that level of consciousness to be a part of the, the mainstream conversation, we've shifted away from it. So when you talk about we don't have the followers, we're not, the level of consciousness isn't there. Okay. So you've got people looking for, we don't know what we're looking for. Right. 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 Like you said, Jesse, you saw Kaepernick and you immediately, your thought was, oh, this brother's going to be out front leading. Right. You were born in the 80s. So you, you, your, your mind is, oh, Dr. King was a leader and Malcolm X was a leader. And then we, we went through the whole, uh, 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 you know, the post civil rights movement and you had all these burgeoning black cities and then Jesse ran for president and all this. You know, we, it, it was a different condition. And now these young people are not conditioned to even look and accept information coming from people that look like them. So we, mm. I find myself a lot of times, and um, you know, on my in my in my historical research, what I've had, what I had to do years ago, man, is I I had to start double. You got to double up your reading because mm. what you find is that when you start talking history, 
And if people know that who you're referencing is a black author or an African author or African based scholarship, they're going to question it. So mm. you've got to find a white writer. <laughs> right, right, right. A white yeah, author got it. That, that is saying the same thing and tell them to go read that book or give mm. them positions out from that point of view. And then people, and people get it, right? We see it. It happens every day in, in social media, right? The black right. people, we will have been saying something hunt for, for thousands of times over and over again. The first time some, some non-black person says it, the same thing we've been saying for years, all of a sudden it's the most important, groundbreaking, unbelievable <laughs> recollection, you know, recollection of thought anybody has ever had. Right. So I think, I think that, I think the composition of our society is really, you know, why we don't have, right, that black leader or folks in that we're going to follow this person and get behind this person because, you know, Kaepernick jumped out there with a position, but he didn't have any actionable ideas on a large scale other than his, you know, his know your rights camp. He's done a few things with, I think, incarcerated individuals. He's done some, he's done some really good things on a local level. But like you said, Jesse, I think people, when, when he became this national symbol, right. I think people were looking for this, for him to galvanize nationally, right? The spirit that we saw in the, uh, you know, when we were watching Eyes on the Prize, like, oh man, right. you know, the right. people, that's what we thought was coming. And, and it didn't. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that we fault him on. I think it's just the nature of, you know, he's doing, and executing what he feels is right. And like I said, because, yeah, but because we haven't protected any black leaders, I mean, he, you know, he, I, he's like, I'm not jumping out there, you know? And then again, with, with you know, the way that it is with Jay-Z, I mean, I, I've got one, I just say it wasn't his, it's not, it wasn't his place. It wasn't his, his, it wasn't his fight or his protest to jump in the middle of because all he's done now is he's just diffused the the agitation that 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 it, it was positive agitation right that's what cap did right it was the agitating nature of him kneeling and calling out um injustice in our communities in our society right you watch this this guy last week this guy murdered four people had killed two people was running around butt naked he chased, the cop was running from him. <laughs> oh yeah I saw that I saw that all this they guy. needed there was some was some was that music from Benny Hill show right right, <laughs> right. but you know we know that injustice Ugh. is rampant in our society and you know yet we are unable to organize ourselves in a way to meet it and strategically challenge it at its at its core. Um, and I just don't think that Jay-Z was in a position. Um, he hadn't been a part of Kaepernick's protest, hadn't been a part of any of that. So I don't think it was his position to capitalize off of the sacrifice, right, that Kaepernick made. I, I, in my opinion, it's something you just leave alone, man. You know, and, and, and it's so hard now because, like I said, the leadership, but, you know, think about it, for instance, if we look at Cap's role, it's probably close or, or kin to uh, um, Rosa Parks, where Rosa Parks doesn't come up with a lawsuit, right, that, that sues in, in, in Montgomery. She doesn't come up with the boy, bo boycott. She does the co first courageous act. And then a bunch of lawyers and preachers and other people with right. status jump in behind right. it. 
And, you know, one of the things, like, for instance, you know, and, you know, we, we needed was, was that we don't have the, the Jesse figure, you know, the Sharpton figure. Sharpton does some good work that way, but, you know, we're really, you know, someone we could, you know, back in the time, back in the day, a Farrakhan, right. who could get people to say, okay, you know what, now that you've done that first thing, you've highlighted the injustice, grown folks are going to come in here now. And we right. have a plan to go from A to B because how are we going to expect this brother to be running up and down the field and also be the civil rights leader? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, but still, man, still, I, I, I still feel like there's a missed opportunity. I know we talked about this in previous shows with, especially with the Dallas Cowboys and Jerry Jones coming <laughs> out, basically saying, you're going to get your black ass out there and be on the field. And, and, and everybody that first week, right, when the boycott was supposed to start, uh, I think everybody was looking through squinted eyes at their television to see what are the players going to do. Because right. if the players play, people going to watch, right? If the players don't, they won't. And I felt that was a peak opportunity for the NFL players, the black players especially, to say, you know what? No, we're not going to deal with that. But it right. didn't happen, so I think it diluted the movement altogether. And once the movement gets diluted, then I think people do go searching for this new figure who's going to have some power. And I'll, and I'll say this, too. I think sometimes as a people, we get so used to being underneath the shoe of the system that we want to personify and put ourselves in the body of the person who has the power to not be underneath that shoe. Underneath and that's what Jay-Z is to us. He's a capitalist, but he's our capitalist. Right? He's, <laughs> he's ours. Right? There you go. <laughs> I like that. He's our capitalist. Yeah, right. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we will we leave it at, at that is how much he's ours. And, and by the way, you know, I'm not particularly mad at Jay Z. I, I, you know, I, I understand where he's coming from. Like you said, he's a capitalist. He does what he what he do. You know, I was more pushing back on the people who had somehow assigned this role to him as you know Jay Luther King. And I'm like, no, brother, you know, is a good businessman and does what he do. But, uh, you know, being a civil rights leader is a whole different thing. And, uh, you know, they don't they don't teach that uh, in, in, you know, either in the Marcy projects or at, at Harvard. Right. Uh, um, that, you know, that's a whole different, different thing. Um, now, 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 that being said, um, we wanted to get to. What do we want to get to, Jesse? Because I want to keep David here forever. The top four. See, we're, we're ah, doing this we thing go. where every guest who comes on got to got to tell us who their their top four presidential candidates are. Mm. Okay, so I mean, I'll, I'll give you. Uh, you know, it's really simple for me, right? It's um, I mean, you got the the the, the establishment candidates like. Uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Um, but the two people, like, the, so I would say those two are going to definitely be in the hunt. I mean, I lived in California for the last three years. Kamala Harris's record and the, 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 you know, the people's sentiment about her in California is not great. Um, and I think that's reflecting in how you hear people, you know, what people feel about her as a potential candidate. I think mm-hmm. Biden is obviously just all the way corporate establishment status quo. Um, but I like uh, I like Tulsi Gabbard because um, she's all about she's a war veteran. She's all about peace. And I like Bernie Sanders because I, I feel like he's an anti-establishment candidate. And, um, 
you know, this nation is in is in a place where, you know, we have to be very, very careful about where we step now. Um, you know, we we live in such a uh, a Disney Disneyfied type society um, that is, you know, controlled by sort of these ideal uh, 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 pursuits that. Mm-hmm. We are too far away from the reality of real life, right? And the fact that, you know, our nation as a, as a nation is literally in decline, right? We've got failing roads. We've got failing bridges. We've got failing schools, not just, not just the actual system, but the actual schools, right? The physical buildings are failing. Right, right, right. We've got, we've got, literal infrastructure uh you know we're 40 or 50 years behind in terms of infrastructure uh uh uh, 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 uh development we have a, a a health care system that costs two or three times as much as any other the closest next health care system in the world we've got the most incarcerated people on the the largest penal colony to ever exist in human history um, um, in, in the land of the free Exactly. We, we've got we've got, uh, uh, you know, more. We've spending almost a trillion dollars um, um, on war uh, a year. I mean, we are we are we are climbing. I mean, we'll have a seven hundred and fifty or sixty billion dollar military budget this year. Um, and we've got, you know, again, we're not in the top 25 in any educational uh, statistical marker. So our society is in a real fight um you know we've got to make a decision as a nation um you know similar to the decision that the, that that Lincoln made right you've got to save the country and you've got to but you've got to eliminate something that has sort of been the bread and butter of this nation the way that enslavement and the enslavement of african people built the foundational uh, industries of this nation we've been undergird uh, undergirded by the last 50 or 60 years in this country by war and mm-hmm. chaos in other countries and mm-hmm. wasting money destroying other nations and not building our own and while we've been doing that uh and many people will, will equate what we're what we're doing as some kind of game other nations have been make have been playing the game in real life right so you've got the chinese on the other side who are i mean these folks have lifted 600 million people out of poverty Mm-hmm. They have 80 million people out of poverty in the last six years alone. You're talking about poverty elimination in China, right? They're already, in terms of trade, in terms of investment, they are locking up other nations around the world. Um, and as, a, as an American who has battled with identity my whole life, um, and what I mean by that is, Knowing and wanting to have a place to call home, um, but never quite feeling like you're home because the outcomes that the system produces aren't necessarily to your benefit. Like you would be like when you're in your home, everything in the house is working to your benefit, whether you like how, 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 how cool your mama keep the house or how hot she make her grits. Everything is working for your benefit. You know, there's going to be food in the kitchen. It's going to be mama going to be in the house, right? And these are the things that we uh, have lost sight of. And mm. it's, 
it, it put us in a, in a in a in a really precarious situation. The media is out of control, right? We don't have journalism in in this country, and journalism is needed in nations to keep power in check, right? Journalism is is a mechanism or a tool that should hold power accountable. And what we've gone to is journalism or media now has replaced journalism and media now is more so just an appendage of power. And it has completely thwarted the way that our society functions, our society thinks. So people don't know the truth from a lie and the lie from the truth. And the president doesn't contribute or help in, in that at all. But. We're at a position where we've got to make a real choice about, you know, where we want to be, uh, in the, in the world. Like, do we want to continue to be a society, um, that produces, um, you know, people with human value and human instinct? Um, cause I, you know, again, I just believe that if, if the society is not just and it's not producing just outcomes, then it's very hard for an unjust society to practice peace and be at peace. And so I think that's why you see our nation being as violent as it is because we're so un, so there's so unjust, mm-hmm. right? There's so little justice in this society that violence or peace is, is, is almost impossible. And so we've got, like I said, um, with, with, with Senator Bernie Sanders, he has his flaws. No candidate is perfect, mm-hmm. but I think in, in addressing these serious issues, an establishment candidate is only going to drive the nail in the coffin quicker. I think Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders has the platform. He has the energy and the right people behind him to challenge the established way we've been doing things and hopefully, you know, get this nation back on the right track. Because if not, you know, we're just not going to be able to compete with the, with the oncoming world. It's just, it's just a matter of fact. No, you're so right. Two things you mentioned I, I want to sort of touch on, because, and this kind of goes back to the basketball, but it's kind of interesting. I've always been fascinated by something about China, and, and this is it. If you go on YouTube now and, and do a search for you know, amazing dribbling videos, what you'll find is you'll find some American kid who is just amazing, three, four years old, can dribble like you wouldn't believe, right? Right. And then you'll see next to it a video produced in China of 75 kids. Right. <laughs> At the same time, and in China, the idea that you can teach one person to do it is useless to them. They're like, well, why would we want to do this? If you can't teach 75 people to do it, it's stupid. Right? right. And their idea is so different. We're in America. We're always trying to sort of separate and figure out that one great person who can do this type of thing. And their yeah. thing is, you know, no, we want to make sure that everyone can get, you know, this thing, whatever it is. Right. And their education system is the same way. We teach for the top 2%. And everybody go. good for them. And, and and they're teaching for the ninety five percent, right? Right. And you know, I, I don't see us, you know, really so like you thriving that way. What we need, I think Jesse would agree with me, is we need a new candidate in a democratic field named David West. I think that's what we need. <laughs> uh oh. Do you want to make an, a statement tonight? Is that- <laughs> Come on out and, and 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 we'll be. I'll write your speeches and and and, and, and Jesse will take over your basketball leagues in the summer. I think it's what we really want. To do. Right, right. 
<laughs> but, but we need someone with this kind of attitude, you know, that's like you said, much more of a collective. I mean, and no wrong, you were going through it. You got the percentages and numbers down. So this isn't something you had, you, you've been thinking about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely. looking to run at some point for, for, for office. I, I, I am not, you know, I just, listen, I, you know, I've got my thought process is um, I'm still trying to gather my own thoughts all the time. Man. And like Jesse, we follow each other on, on Facebook. So he knows how, you know, how I can get wired sometimes. I, I just, like I said, <laughs> I, I just, I just think that, you know, humans, there's a certain, there's a certain essence to human beings, right. That we carry. And, you know, if you, if you want to talk about uh, human emotion um, and human feeling, right. When you, and I've said this publicly, but when you when you're an officer, right, and you're choking a man, mm-hmm. right, and you hear a man say, "I can't breathe," mm-hmm. your your human emotion, and, and 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 us as human beings, our human need and our human emotion should always be able to drown out the things that are sort of antithetical of the human existence. So when someone says, I can't breathe, and you've got your arm around their neck, your natural inclination, if you're governed by the things that makes us uniquely human, would be to say, oh, he can't breathe. I don't want to do that. I was watching, and I'm saying that to say this. I was watching a video literally like three or four days ago, and it was a news video, and they were covering some of the stuff that was going on in Hong Kong, the protests, right? Right, right. You literally there's a, a, a there's a skirmish, a skirmish, and the police grab somebody. Within two seconds, <laughs> another police officer says to the police officer that grabbed the guy, "Stop! He's not going to be able to breathe." Got it right. It was two seconds. When I when I when we were in China three, it was probably three years ago. I was with the Warriors, right? Mm-hmm. I watched Chinese police officers allow other Chinese citizens, Chinese basketball fans to get closer to players like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and KD than I would have ever seen in my life. Right. And I was, and it was a, it was something that I watched over the course of a couple of days and my wife was on the trip with us. And so we were walking to dinner one night through the mall and they had security there. And I told my wife, when we were walking, I said, now nah, I've watched these security guys. They're not going to protect us from their <laughs> own countrymen. You understand? So for them, they're like, look, my, this is my countryman. He is, I know that he's harmless. So your celebrity and who you are in America is not going to trump how I treat my own here at home. So yeah, you step curry, but if this Chinese person comes up to me, and just and and says to me he just wants to take a picture of you and two feet away they were letting him do that but you see because there's a certain human element that is existing in their society they don't see they see the humanity in their brother right right so the man I'm watching the video a police officer grabs a protester he starts choking him the other police officer says you're going to cut stop it he, he's not going to be able to breathe and he stopped Mm. Yeah, and, and that is when you have an idea that says, "By this way, we're on the same team here." I'm, you know, my job is to protect this person as much as it is to protect Steph Curry. Right. In America, the idea the cop has is that no, my my job here is to protect me and maybe some other rich person 
that I'm showing my care about. But right. speaking, the idea is that, you know, the, the, the poor person, the, the, the person of color, that's not a person that is on, from their side, their team, right? They say right. that he's totally different and, and, and you know, doesn't, you know, they, they don't think they work for us, right? right. They, they think that they work to protect other people from us. Right. Right. Which is a different mindset um and you know i mean all the things you say i, I wish we as americans had this mindset of that that, that we were you know on, on the same team here and that you know it, it isn't enough just that one of us makes it right right i understand that everybody's got this and people have this concept that humans are so that we that we've got this individual drive, like you said, that it's going to be the one person. All of us literally come into this world attached to another person. Literally, yeah, good point. Mm, that's good. That's good preaching. We literally come in this world attached to someone else. So there's there's the idea that somehow we come into the world attached to someone, but then we're supposed to live our lives completely as individuals. <laughs> It makes no, it doesn't reconcile good thought in my mind. And so mm-hmm. I just think that from, from a perspective of a society, right? If you take away the titles and your success and what you've achieved and accomplished, it is, is the society producing just outcomes? And if it's producing just outcomes, then that society can produce peace and the people can be at peace. And if we if we can't get our society to that point and fast, and this is where I say the media has to has to hold some responsibility here because you can't print and put into publication things just to rile people up, mm. just to just to stir the boat, just to stir the pot, right? This is the problem with our voting electorate, right? With our mm. voting system, we assume that. When you go into that ballot box, that you're in a rational state of mind with all of the mess that's going on out here in the world, with, with as flimsy and as whimsical as people are. Right. The assumption right. is that's how Donald Trump became president, because there's enough. You push enough buttons. You can make people just irrational enough. You can make mm-hmm. them just just fearful enough. Oh, my God. We don't want another black president. We don't want another. We don't want. We don't want black people feeling like they've moved and made this this upward tick in society. We're going to go to the person that represents everything opposite of what was just in the office. And this is how you end up with Trump. Well, I, I, you, could, you couldn't say it any, any, any clearer. Um, before we let you go, um, anything you want to plug? You're going to be at the comedy store on Tuesday. Uh, got an album coming, rap album coming out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, man. I'm just, like I said, man, just, you know, if anybody wants to check out the H, uh, HBL, uh, our website is hbleague.com. Um, check us out, you know, spread the word. We're a, a, a professional college basketball league coming to a, a city in the mid Atlantic near you. Um, we're gonna, you know, look to change the landscape of college basketball forever and, um, you know, create a system that's equitable and fair and properly, uh, compensates these athletes for the labor, uh, and the huge, huge market that they help, help produce. 
Excellent. Yeah. I'm on the website now. I will put a link to that uh, in, in the show notes here so everybody can go to the website um, and, you know, and, and, and make sure we keep up with this in 2021, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and I've been sitting here taking notes on everything that you all have been talking about. It's been a very deep episode. Uh, one, I have renewed my interest in wanting to go at least see what China's all about. I'm curious as to if there's any place on the planet where black people can feel that love. And I know you've got experience uh, dealing with Ghana and -hmm. I know, you know, you've been there a lot. Is is there something that you feel like as a black American, we can go to Ghana and have a similar feel of a a society that embraces us? You know, I'll I'll tell you, man. um, It's just Africa has its challenges. It, it make, let me make that very clear, right? What, what has been done to the continent of Africa over the course of, uh, I mean, if we want to really go back into history, I mean, you're talking about, you know, about a 1200 year period now of just, just absolute invasion, intrusion, interruption, disruption, however you want to name it and call it. But in spite of all of that, Africa is full of people, um, and Africa is full of life. Life may be modest, right? I think the entire, listen to this, the entire continent of Africa, I think the entire GDP combined is less than the, the nation of France or one, uh, or Italy or something like that. Like mm-hmm. we don't, Africa is in a very tough position, but, but our people are, if you ever want to see humor, human, the human personification of resiliency, you go, you'll see it in Africa. If you want to feel what being resilient looks like. You know, if you ever want to feel it, like you see it, if you want to feel it, that's what you'll feel uh, in Africa. If you ever want to get the feeling of uh, sharing a meal and that meal being as valuable as a million dollars, go to Africa. If you ever want to be embraced by total strangers and people who don't know you but somehow or some way they feel, look and feel familiar. That's what you get when you go, when you go to Africa. You know, those are the things that you find there. It's not going to be the, you know, I've, I've, I've been a few, I've been to, to Africa now multiple times. Uh, I've been to both coast, East and West Africa, and I've never been to, never been on safari. I'm not going there to do the touristy, stereotypical things, right? right? Going there to engage with the people, going there to experience the culture, um, and going there to connect um, and find pieces of history that, you know, were lost to us. And so that, you know, that's my, my two cents about going to Africa is if you want to feel certain things that, you know, uh, you know, that we just don't feel here, um, you feel it there. Um, you know, watching young children play, uh, we look at their condition and may think, man, how could they be smiling? Yet they smile. Mm. Um, you know, those are the things that, uh, again, like I say, experience is the biggest teacher for me. And those are the things that you get when you step foot in Africa. And it has its challenges, right? It's been, it's been, it's been utterly destroyed. It's been invaded and, and people have had their way in, on the continent for, like I said, over a thousand years now, but those, 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 those essential human elements have never gone anywhere. 
It never left, and they're still there. Mm. Mm. All right, well, then, then put that down, Jesse. We are going to go, um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to get the sponsors to pay for it when we get sponsors. <laughs> um, and, and they're going to have to be somebody good because uh, it, it's not cheap to go. <laughs> right, right. Um, but no, I, I do want to go. Obviously, I think we all do. Um, we just got to make it make it happen. Uh, and right. NCAA, this is a great way to get people to go back to Africa. So, uh, <laughs> in case you were thinking about that, you know, <laughs> they, don't, they, they, don't want, they don't want they don't want them to go back yet. They, they ain't made that money. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, before before we go, I want to make sure. So if this is your first episode of the Brothers in Law podcast and you are not already following us, be sure to follow us on Facebook and all social media. That's B-R-U-T-H-A-S-N Law. That's L-A-W. Uh, and also uh, go back and binge watch, but binge listen, I guess, all of the old episodes leading up to now and just experience the greatness because this is quality content that you just aren't going to get anywhere else. It's a once in a lifetime show. And I mean, literally the moment that showtime comes through with checks, we're probably gone. So <laughs> <laughs> after having this lightning conversation, right, right. We're going to sell out. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate you being on the show, man. Thank you so much. Hey, yes, really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me, man. It's been great.